Hey, can I give you some feedback? Those seven words used to put me all the way on the defensive. And to be honest, because it was so hard for me to hear them, I also dreaded having to say them. On the flip side, I've also worked with people with zero filter. I'm sure I don't have to tell you how that goes. See, both of these approaches are flawed, but there are two sides of the same coin. They signal that our emotional intelligence needs a little tune-up. My guest today is Shamshir Shurgil, a senior product manager and coach who has put emotional intelligence at the forefront of her client work. In an industry where just about everything, from job titles to features, means something totally different depending on who you're talking to, it really behooves us to first understand how to work better with other people. And if emotional intelligence as a term has just always sounded a bit wishy-washy to you, you are actually the perfect audience for this episode. Shamshir's concrete examples and strategies are really going to transform how you work with your product team. Let's jump in. Welcome back, listeners. We are joined today by Shamshir Shergill. She is a senior product manager and coach, and she's joining us today from the Bay Area. Is that right? That's right. I'm in San Francisco. Awesome. So Shamshir, we always start out the same way. I would love if you could just walk us through your professional background and how you ended up in your current role as a coach. Yeah, for sure. I'll take you all on the journey. So this starts way, way back when I first graduated. I was an engineering major and I was actually a software engineer. So I did that for a couple of years and it was super interesting because when I was coding, you know, time would stop. And that was really cool to start my career that way. Ultimately, when I was working with some of the product people in my org, I noticed that, you know, some of the decisions they were making and how deeply in touch they were with their users was driving a lot of impact and how they were kind of interacting with different stakeholders to piece something together was super exciting to me. So it was kind of like taking the best parts of engineering, which is breaking things down into their essential parts to come up with something and build something new while being deeply connected and understanding your users. That was really exciting for me. And so that's when I transitioned into product. And also when I moved to San Francisco, I've held a number of product roles over the years, everything from like a five-person product team to an 80-person product team. So it's been really cool to see at different scales how product works. And, you know, a lot of the companies that that listeners would recognize are like my time at Pinterest and Thumbtack, uh, sort of like the highlights of my career. So after I did that for a few years, um, as I got more senior, I got the opportunity to coach both engineers and product managers as part of my more senior role. And I really enjoyed that. It was kind of like taking some of the things that I do as a product manager like asking really good questions and pulling out insights to drive actions forward. I got to do that with people. And so that's when I transitioned into coaching product managers and other like analytically minded folks. And really the purpose is to just kind of help them unblock themselves and drive a lot of impact. So that brings us to today. Yeah. And so happy to have you here and hopefully you can do the same for us. So today's focus, we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence, which is something very near to my heart. And it's something that you've mentioned has really strongly benefited your career overall, kind of through all all the iterations that it's taken. So what was the light bulb moment for you when you realized that this is like a skill that's really worth leaning into? Yeah, I don't know if it was one specific moment versus like a series of moments that kind of brought it together. But I saw it kind of happening in three different areas. So it's kind of like I kept hitting the wall over and over again, and I couldn't figure out how to move forward. The first area was when I was working internally with other teams and like partnering on things together. 
it was really difficult to move things forward. There would be a lot of resistance. And then, you know, naturally a part of that that brings us to the second area, which is interfacing really closely with leadership, especially in a bottoms up culture. It's actually much more important because you're trying to influence upwards, uh, which was the case for me at Pinterest and Thumbtack. And then the third area was really around influencing my team overall. So getting my engineering and design team on board with a strategy that we've built. These are all correlated, but these are like the three areas that, that it showed up in. We've been talking about influence a lot. So it was around being able to influence the people that I'm working with to move into the product direction that is going to help us drive that result forward. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I kind of want to dig a little deeper onto that. When we talk about emotional intelligence as sort of like a stakeholder management tool, so can we kind of talk a little bit more granularly about some of the strategies that you've used, maybe like through anecdotes or like some more specific stories about, you know, ways that you've interacted with stakeholders in an emotionally intelligent way that was able to drive an outcome and what that outcome was? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take an example of there's like a lot of situations where this is going to happen. But let's take the example of trying to come up with a strategy for what you're going to work on for the next, let's say, quarter or six months. A lot of product teams set their goals within that time structure. Now, you may have an opinion about how things are going to move forward or what you think needs to get built. But then leadership has a different vision or opinion around what they think should get built. And then like your eng team thinks something else should get built. Maybe your design partner thinks that you should move in a different direction. So there's a lot of voices and opinions in the room. So that's like a very tactical example that a PMA is going to experience over and over in their career. And it's really around, I like to call it product therapy. Sorry to kind of like, so what I'm looking for. Like buzzwordify? Yeah, buzzwordify it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's really like that. So for me, what's been really effective and what I teach a lot of my clients too is you really want to understand the person on the other side and you want to understand like what are their motivations? What are some of the outcomes that they're trying to drive? And how can you discover the common interests and motivations that you have? Because if you're going to go and pitch someone a strategy or a vision without really understanding where they're coming from or what are the things that really make them tick, it's just going to be really hard and also next to impossible. But if you're able to kind of have that conversation and discover it together, it's just going to be so much smoother. This is actually something I learned from a design partner that I worked with where we had a really strong relationship working together. We would kind of come up with a problem that we were trying to solve together and then we would hold brainstorming sessions and we would invite everybody that we thought should have an input or that we wanted to influence to this session. So for example, in at Thumbtack, we were trying to decide what's the mission and vision for our team. So, you know, you might think that as a PM, I'm going to sit down and have like some deep thought, come up with this beautifully crafted document. But that's actually not a very effective process. So the, the question here is, what's the mission and vision for the growth team at Pinterest? And so we invited our um, engineering partners, design partners, other uh, content, so uh, product marketing, and uh, basically everyone that we wanted to have a stake. And we together, we brainstormed. Why does our team exist? What do we want to accomplish? How do we then think about this in the context of the broader teams and the org at Thumbtack? And throughout that process, we iterated like three or four times. No idea was a bad idea. And we would just kind of come up and think about what we wanted to say. And then afterwards... I would tease out like common themes and we would kind of iterate on that until we arrived at, oh, this is our mission and this is our vision and this is our goal. And it was like crystal clear. Everyone was 100% bought in because they were invited to participate in that process from day one. 
And that's really how you influence and use that emotional intelligence. So to circle back to what I was saying earlier, let's say you're trying to influence leadership. This is something every PM has to do. And it's a difficult skill to learn because no one really teaches it to you. So what you're going to do is you're going to try to understand what are the deep motivations of this leader. Let's say it's my CPO or the CEO. What do they care about? What are the things that keep them up at night? Where does my problem stack in the rank of their overall problems? And then when I go to them and I learn all these things and there's like an idea or a vision I have, I'm going to try and frame it in that way. So like the language that they're already speaking, I can fit it into that. Let's say, for example, like you really like soccer and I want to explain a concept to you that is really product heavy. I'm going to try and frame it in soccer terms and then you're going to like internalize it way better. So that's really where the emotional intelligence piece comes in. It's not just about the idea. It's about who is on the receiving end and how can I make sure that they understand and it's not a lossy communication that's happening. Yeah, I can see that same approach really influencing all the way through to the deliverable that the user is receiving. Like you're really trying to put yourself in your colleague's shoes, in your user's shoes and like kind of flip the script on what are my motivations or how can I marry them with your motivations? Exactly. So it shouldn't be one at the expense of other, right? It shouldn't be just mine and just theirs, but it's about discovering that common ground. And like, obviously my CEO and my CPO care about driving results for users and I do too. So that's our common ground. How we do that might be different or how we think we should approach that might be different. But once we can agree on that, then we can find a path forward where we both have buy-in. I love that. Okay. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit because when we're talking about working with teams, naturally leadership, working with teams, feedback is inevitably going to pop up. And I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with, especially well, both giving and receiving, honestly, depending on what yeah. personality you have. So can you walk me through a mindset shift that like when we're kind of looking at emotional intelligence as a tool, how we can be more emotionally intelligent with how we give feedback? And then I'm, I'm going to ask you again, if you can talk, walk me through some like receiving feedback tips as well. For sure. For sure. I think one thing that's been really instrumental in giving feedback for me personally is thinking about how to frame it in a way so that it's received in a non-confrontational way. And I think what's really helpful is to tease out the behavior rather than giving feedback to the person, right? So that's one thing. We want to really separate that. The other thing I think that's really important is when you're giving feedback, sometimes it's helpful to understand where the person's head is at. So let's say, for example, I'm working with my engineering manager and I'm just going to make up a problem. They keep trying to do product work and I don't like that. So one of the feedback I want to give to them is, hey, I really need your help in like focusing on more of the tactical work with the engineering team and managing like the day to day. And I want to focus more on the product strategy. You're supposed to both focus on that, but sometimes the lines can blur a little bit. So if I see that, that's not going to go really well, right? But if the feedback is around, like, how do we succeed as a team? So it's about, hey, like, we need to accomplish shipping this product. And the way that I think I can be really impactful is by focusing on the strategy and keeping you in the loop. But I really think that, like, I need your help focusing on this other piece where you're managing the engineers and the sprint timeline. So can we kind of agree on roles here? Or, hey, like, since you're focusing a lot on strategy, like, what's happening here? Do you feel like that you need to take more ownership because you're scared or anxious about the results that we're going to drive? And how can we come up with a model that makes both of us feel like we have ownership and control, but we still have clear lines around who's accountable and responsible for which parts of the product process? 
So I think that kind of framing is super helpful. So to summarize, one is like depersonalize the feedback you're giving, tease out the impact on the behavior rather than focusing on the person. And then the other piece is framing it around what you're trying to accomplish together. And I think there's one piece that I kind of missed. So I talked about depersonalizing the feedback and focusing on like what you're trying to accomplish together. I think it's really around like creating that open-ended environment. If you want to call out a behavior that you think is not helpful, kind of figuring out like why it's happening can maybe help you find an environment or a solution where that behavior doesn't happen anymore. And then also like, you know, if you're in a position of leadership and you're managing other PMs, I think giving feedback in like that open-ended environment is super impactful. You never want to catch people off by surprise. So you can kind of start off by asking, hey, I noticed like you've been really late to meetings. Like what's going on? Or, hey, I noticed like your meetings are not not as effective as they could be. Do you feel blocked somewhere? How can we help you and how can we support you? So that's kind of like my philosophy overall. I really love that. I think it really contributes to an overall culture within the team, within the organization, because it's so easy for like something that you don't intend to be particularly confrontational to just snowball into just toxic thing that kind of hangs a cloud over team interaction. But it's just like living and breathing those like, you know, approaching feedback as an invitation rather than a confrontation. I think it's just you completely change the dynamics and mechanics of the culture. I really love the words that you use, which is it's an invitation. And I think one thing to keep in mind around that, too, is you're observing the feedback from your own vantage. Like another problem person in that situation might not experience the same problem as well. So that invitation is like a really great way to discover what's going on and how you can partner together to like work more effectively. I love that. And so now let's flip the script a little bit more and talk about receiving feedback, which is something that the first person to admit I struggle with it. So <laughs> honestly, needed. like I'm I'm still working on this myself, too. It's difficult because, you know, but earlier when we were talking about giving feedback, I really intentionally emphasize that you want to depersonalize it. And I know a lot of times in my career when I receive feedback, I really personalize it. Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. So it's like, oh, no, I'm a bad PM. I'm a bad employee or something like that. But it's really not about that. It's about someone, you know, telling you their perception and their opinion. So that's really what feedback is. It's not a fact and it's not a judgment. It's someone's observation. You're free to take it or leave it. I think people forget that. If someone gives you feedback, it's not like they're slamming like the hammer and they're a judge. It's just like trying to see why would that person think that way? And like really remove yourself from that situation and like put someone else in that situation. If they were getting that feedback, how might you feel? So I think that really kind of helps deep. Once you can depersonalize it, that's super helpful. The other thing too is if you're consistently receiving the same feedback, maybe there's something there and there's something for you to improve. I think it's difficult for people to give feedback. So when they do give it, it's really important to reflect on it a little bit and see, is there anything I can take away from here? And it's fine if there's nothing you want to take away. But slowing down to ask that question is really going to help you level up too because So much of your career is working with other people as a PM and how you're perceived is an integral part of how successful you can be as well. So I think that's one piece. The other piece is you're going to feel your feelings around it. So like you might be angry, you might feel dignified, you might feel a judge. And I think that's totally okay. You should just allow yourself to feel those things. And like, that's fine. Maybe like trying to figure out why you feel that way, 
Is it because they're touching on some edge of yourself that you don't want to acknowledge? So for example, like I sometimes receive feedback that I'm very quiet and I'm not like very opinionated. You know, for me, I'm a very thoughtful person. And when I'm in a room of people, I want to be really careful about what I say. And I want my words to land and be impactful. So for that reason, I'm very picky with what I say. But some people perceive that as me being disengaged. And they Mm -hmm. think I'm not like, I don't care or I don't have an opinion. And as a PM, I should have an opinion on everything. So that's been really difficult feedback for me to receive throughout my career. And I've had to actively work on helping people understand that I'm engaged. I'm just processing what you're saying and I'm naturally introverted. So sometimes I don't say things without like having a fully formed opinion. So I've learned to kind of workshop it with people and label it like, hey, like I'm just thinking about this. We're going to figure out what this really means. And I might have like a different opinion later. And that gives me permission to share something that's less solidified as well. You know, it, it kind of goes back to that depersonalization aspect of things that you mentioned. Like sometimes a big issue is that just people don't have a window into your thought process. It's not necessarily judgment. It's a judgment of their perception, right? It's not necessarily, you know, your intent or, you know, the grand plan that you might have in your own mind that you haven't shared with other people. Yeah, that's so true. Like they don't know. Like in this example, people think I'm disengaged, but I'm super engaged. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I don't look engaged to the way that you're there used to seeing an engaged person. That totally makes sense. And I feel like I can really use this advice. So I really appreciate it on a personal (laughs) level. Amazing. (laughs) Uh, So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the blame versus accountability dynamic. Mm -hmm. Since we're kind of on the topic of feeling a certain type of way (laughs) with feedback, et cetera. Yeah. So something that you mentioned to me before is the importance of making the shift from blame versus accountability. And I just want to kind of pick your rate a little bit about that. Like, what does that mean to you? What does that like shift really look like in a culture? And I feel like maybe we've talked about it a little bit, but like more in like an anecdotal term. Yeah, it's funny. We've been talking so much about like influence and like giving and receiving feedback. And these are all like central things. And I think one of the things about being a product manager is that there is a high level of responsibility and ownership that's bestowed upon you. So that does come with certain ways of operating that exist in certain companies and teams. And just on like a little tangent before I get to that question, I think that we're really um, learning hard skills is like a lot more accessible versus some of these things we're talking about. It's not as easy and it's not as openly talked about. So kind of diving into some of these things can really help shift the career. So one of the key pieces that I see pop up over and over again is the blame versus accountability. So due to the nature of the product manager role, like having that high level of accountability and ownership, the buck does stop with you. You are going to deliver those results. So inevitably, when you don't, people are going to look to you and they're going to ask, why didn't that happen? And sometimes that can carry the tone of you didn't do your job effectively. And it could feel like you're being blamed. And I think that it's really important to shift that conversation to a different type of conversation. So to me, the word, the difference between blame and accountability, blame to me feels like really closed off and a dead end conversation. It's like, hey, Hannah, I don't think you did your hair very nicely today. You know, where do we go from there? (laughs) So, (laughs) So in the context of a product manager, it's like, hey, like, You didn't run that meeting effectively. You didn't deliver. You didn't ship this feature on time. Your vision doesn't resonate with like so-and-so. It's not a very open-ended conversation. Accountability, it looks really different. When uh, we're talking about accountability, it's a two-player game. So 
when we're working in partnership with other people, we're both accountable for delivering those results. The pieces of what we're accountable for may be different. So as a product manager, I'm accountable to make sure the team is running properly, that everyone is super clear on what we're working on, and I'm accountable for removing any roadblocks that come along the way. Now, notice what I'm saying it's a two-player game. There's always another person on the other side of this equation. So that could be my engineering manager, my direct manager, my leadership. We both have to bring in different parts to make this go forward. So with my engineering manager, you know, maybe I'm accountable for running the sprint meetings and he's accountable for making sure all the tickets get completed. I don't know. It's different for every team, but it's super important to get crystal clear on what that accountability means in your specific context. And circling back to the blame versus accountability, blame, as we said, is very dead end. Accountability is more open ended. So, you know, you might be noticing a theme in a lot of my answers here. So accountability looks like, hey, like, why didn't that feature ship on time? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. Let's talk about how we can make sure that happens differently next time. And let's talk about why it didn't happen on time this time. Oh, like our engineering resources were short-staffed. Someone didn't flag it appropriately. Next time, we need to have more regular check-ins on a weekly level to make sure we're resourced properly so that we can ship things or we need to cut down what we're shipping to make that happen. That's an accountability conversation. Oh, yeah, you know, what part of that process feels like it would be most helpful to you? Do you want weekly check-ins? Do you want bi-weekly check-ins? How about emails? Whatever that looks like in your context, it's important for you to figure that out. So circling back to, Hannah, why didn't you do your hair nicely today? It's like, hey, Hannah, how do you normally like to do your hair? Do you like to wear it straight or curly? <laughs> it definitely changes the tone. <laughs> and I just want to say that if someone starts with a blame, it doesn't mean you have to continue it that way. You're an equal participant in that conversation and you can change the tone of that conversation. So let's say, for example, if my CPO or my VP of product comes to me and they, they say like, hey, you're not doing this. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Thanks. Let's talk about it. How can we make that differently next time? So you can absolutely change the direction of where things are headed. It doesn't, it doesn't have to stop. I love that. Like, I love that call out because I think it's really easy to get uh, to engage and match the energy of the person that's coming towards you, especially yeah. in a more of a confrontational or feedback context where that person maybe has not done a lot of inner work on their EQ. And, you know, we tend to get reactive, especially for, you know, the work is really close to our heart or we've put a lot of effort into it or we have this grand plan in our mind that they're not privy to. And exactly. Yeah. To take a step back and go, you know what? Like I have influence on the tone of this conversation and I'm also influencing this person on how they can handle that conversation the next yeah. time. Yeah. And honestly, like it's not easy to do all the time. I'm going to be the first to say that I can't do it 100 percent of the time. Sometimes I react defensively and like, what do you mean? It's not my fault that didn't happen. So it's okay to like just practice over time and you'll naturally get better at it. I think that you're really onto something with that. This is this is lots of fun. So I did want to talk a little bit about cultural shifts within an organization mm -hmm. now that we're kind of on the topic of influencing the culture around you and kind of setting the tone for the culture of your product team. So naturally, you know, when you enter a product team that pre-exists you, you're entering into a culture of its own. You're also encountering people who have their own cultural norms within, you know, their maybe cliques or niches or even just the cultural standards and the kind of baggage that you bring from your home life. How do you reconcile some of these obstacles, let's call them challenges, 
in emotionally sensitive way and kind of ease friction and promote some better communication and outcomes using your EQ? Yeah, I think that it's really difficult. And I'm not going to lie, it's something I'm still working on. Um, You know, personally speaking, I grew up in a culture where I'm not actively encouraged to share my opinions. But being a product manager, that's like a central part of my job, right? So it's, it's really difficult for me to navigate how to exist in environments, two different environments where the expected behavior is like such a big contrast to the other environment. And I think one way that's helpful is kind of, first of all, recognizing and labeling it that like, hey, this is what's going on. For the longest time, I wasn't able to do that. I was like, this kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier when I'm quiet and I'm listening, I'm kind of processing because I want to give that powerful opinion. For the longest time, like I didn't know that people love hearing like your workshop thoughts. They want to hear like what you're thinking. They want to be a part of that process where you're thinking through something. And so I think like labeling, first of all, what was going on, like, oh, hey, this is an environment where opinions are welcomed. It's like people want to hear what I'm thinking and I'm processing, whereas maybe in my home culture, that's not the case. So recognizing that these two environments invite different parts of me was really helpful. And then I think also this is something that's worked for me. I don't know if others can resonate. I kind of have like different personas sometimes that I identify with when I exist in different cultures and different environments. So sometimes they they kind of express themselves differently in both both environments. So for example, like let's talk about the opinionated one. I can be like very outspoken and quiet at the same time. So in environments where I'm working as a product manager, it's an opportunity for me to lean more into the, the outspoken person and kind of identify with that a little more. And then like in my home culture, I can still do that, but it looks different. So I can express my opinion in like in a more quiet way and like do it directly or indirectly. So I think that like circling back, it's recognizing and labeling that environments expect different things from you and then finding ways to express that that feel like you're not compromising who you are or being like a fake person to kind of do that because you need it to be sustainable. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do it for very long. That makes sense. I think a lot of people can identify with the idea of having kind of different personas that emerge in different environments and around different people that influence you in certain ways. I know certainly when I interact with work people versus my friend circle, you know, we're talking about different things. We're energized about different um, parts of. So I think it's natural to tap into that and to recognize well, good to recognize, too, that those are natural phenomenons that don't make you, you know, any version of you less genuine. Yeah, that's very true. Um, Hannah, I think you, you touched it that we're naturally all really doing it, probably without even realizing it. The way you are with your friends versus you are with your coworkers, you do bring out different sides of yourself. It's just that this is an extreme example where, like, cultures at home and your personal life and cultures at work might be at odds and different ends of the spectrum. So it's like more pronounced, this difference. Yeah, I suppose so. And then if we're looking at things more from the perspective of folks who are working with teams where there is diversity of any kind, really, like Mm -hmm. how can we kind of bake like just sensitivity into our process where we're really thinking about those things and intelligently putting ourselves in other people's shoes and Mm -hmm. like managing a group dynamic in which you know multiple kind of like you're saying like multiple kinds of versions of like what's expected might exist and I know that's kind of like a complex question but like (laughs) it sounds like you maybe have dealt with something like this before (laughs) of course 
there's, I mean, we kind of touched on this at the beginning, right? That was the first question you asked, like, how does emotional intelligence impact the work that you do as a product manager? And what's interesting is that because the role of a product manager is so nuanced and it's, I think of it as a glue function, it looks different in every team, stage of the company, like different industries. So there is no clear cut way to do product management. And that also means that a lot of your colleagues might be used to working with a different flavor of product manager than you are. And so everyone has a different opinion about how this job gets done, because as an engineer, it's very clear cut when you deliver something. As a designer, it's very clear cut. As a product manager, it's so fuzzy, which is one of the great things about this role. Like you can really make it your own, but it's also difficult because people think that parts of your job should be things that you don't think are parts of your job. So... I think one thing that I've seen people do really well is they have sort of like a documentation around this is what product management means at this company. And everyone kind of aligns with what a product manager means. And it, the exercise of doing this is way more useful than having like the document, right? Because you're all talking about it and coming up with that solution. So kind of circling back to your question, when you're working with people who come from different backgrounds and like have different expectations, I really think that this is the process. It's really around like clarifying, like, what does this mean to you? And what does this mean to me? And where's that common ground? And does any, either one of us need to kind of reinvent the way that we're making meaning out of this? I know this all sounds like really like complicated and like a lot of work, but it's really not, you know, like one simple thing might be like, hey, like, what does sprint planning mean to you? Do you want to go through each individual ticket or do you just want to like review everything beforehand, make sure all the tickets are tightened up and just have like a brief conversation around assigning tickets and make sure everyone has enough work? That's a very concrete example of how you can run your team differently based on your organization. I think that's very succinct. I'm also very impressed by how you're just completely handling like these like big existential uh, emotional intelligence <laughs> questions and like... <laughs> I'm learning so much. Okay, Thank so you, Anna. <laughs> no problem. But I cannot let you get away with using the term flavors of product management without talking <laughs> about the flavors of product management, because I think it's like this is something we discussed before the call. And I, I think that there's something so interesting about the ways that people self-specialize according to their personality type. I mean, people do just in their career in general. But then when you talk about specialties of product management, and you're right, you know, there's no one way to product manage and it looks different at every organization. If you don't mind, let's talk about the different flavors of product management as you see them. And like, yeah, some of the people who you think would be most drawn to those. And I'm kind of I have like the associate product manager in mind, like the folks who are listening, who are just like looking for their place in the world. This is really for anyone in, in their product career, because even after I found my footing, I kind of shifted a little bit. So this is not just for the APMs, like any person in their career can find this useful. And there's so many different ways to cut this and say, oh, like product managers belong in this category, in this category. But I'll just talk about like two or three that I've encountered in my career. And I'm curious to hear if you have anything to add to this as well. One framework that I find particularly helpful is thinking through sort of like the growth PM the core product PM, and the platform PM. And there's another vertical here, which we can cut across, which is the B2C and the B2B. So what I mean by that is like consumer-facing or a business-facing product. The way that those two function looks really different too. So let's talk about the first three and then we kind of talk about the other two. So growth PM is like hyper-focused on driving metric. This is like your PM focusing on activation, engagement, or retention. 
signups, that whole flow. And they're usually really focused on driving a specific metric that either talks about like indirectly correlates to revenue or like just overall boosting like the active users of your product. This type of this type of work is pretty fast in nature, but you're also working on a lot of things at any given time. So here's an example for you. When I was at Pinterest, I was on the growth team. I was running about 40 A-B tasks at one point. And that was just my team. There were eight other growth teams probably running that many tasks as well. Those tasks are small, but they drive a lot of impact. So a lot of the growth work also unfolds as as you're building it, depending on like sort of your role as well. Sometimes like growth PMs can focus on implementing a referral strategy for a quarter, but sometimes they can get much more granular than that. So that's like one flavor of product manager. And I think the people that are attracted to this level of work tend to be like really numbers driven and they get a lot of reward from moving the needle pretty quickly. Then we get to our core PM, which is like sort of what you might be familiar with as like the traditional PM flavor. And that's really like around understanding the reason that your product exists and kind of building on that. It tends to be a little bit slower in nature, but it tends to have a little bit more depth than the growth PM as well. And keep in mind, these are just my experiences and my generalization. So I hope nobody comes from me and says <laughs> It's okay to have a hot take. Leave a comment. (laughs) What if I'm a core product PM and I'm listening to this? I'm like, what do you mean? My work is fast too. (laughs) I mean, prove it. (laughs) I love it. So that's really like more on those long-term, long-tail projects. So for example, at Pinterest, that might look like building out the repin feature or optimizing how the home feed provides you content. Then we have our platform PM, and these uh, PMs work on a lot of internally facing products. So that's either used by like other PMs or other stakeholders in your company. And they tend to be really focused on building those tools. So for example, at Pinterest, we had our own in-house A-B testing platform that was built out by one of the product teams there. So that's an example there. And then, you know, as we said, there's a way to cut this well from B to C and B to B. So consumer products are built a little bit differently. It's like a bit of a art and science. You're trying to understand what your user wants. Sometimes you're guessing. You're just running a lot of tests to gather data and feedback to see what's working and resonating with your users. And then with uh, B2B, it's a lot about asking your users what they want and trying to find like a way to build it. And sometimes like you'll have 10 users and like they want five different things and your job is to prioritize and figure out like what should get built. So it's a little bit more, they tell you what you want and then you go build it. There's a less guesswork involved. So I think the types of people that kind of get attracted to both of those tend to be different. I've seen a lot of people go into consumer product where they tend to be like super curious. And this is not to say that like B2B PNs aren't curious, but these are just my experiences. Tend to be super curious and really curious about like user psychology and understanding why they do the things that they do. And I think with B2B, a lot of gratification comes from finding out what someone's problem is, building it, and then seeing them use that solution. Mm -hmm. So it's like a different reward. And then kind of circling back to the growth core product and platform PM, I think for core product, it's a little bit similar where when you're deeply understanding what the user wants and you're building for that, you do tend to have that gratification versus where growth PM, maybe like when you hit your metrics or you see a strategy working, like that's super rewarding. And then for a platform PM, maybe it's like people using your tools to drive their product forward. You find that really impactful. So 
sometimes it's like the velocity at which these teams operate tend to attract a certain type of person. And sometimes the way which product gets built overall. So I tend to sit somewhere between like growth and core products. I do appreciate like the nature where you kind of optimize numbers and you can really see the results you're driving. But sometimes you can over-optimize for that and forget who is the person at the end of this process that's using my product? What do they care about? And what is the problem that I'm solving for them? So for example, like when I was at Pinterest and we were optimizing how quickly the home feed refreshes, it's very easy to lose touch with who's using the product on the other end because you can like literally optimize that forever. And so it's felt like, oh, like sometimes people want to come back to the content that they're seeing and we don't need to optimize it. It's like really kind of combining those two is like the bridge where I like to say it personally. Do you think that there's any, like when we talk about platform PMs, any kind of like a personality type that feels really gratified by being that close to the user base and being able to enable like people who are kind of on the same team to do better work? Yeah, for sure. I think if I were given the opportunity or I wanted to seek that out, I would personally find that really rewarding too, because you're like driving impact across your users as well. But there's like this other layer where you can drive that impact. So let's say if I'm working on the platform that enables AV testing at Pinterest, like how cool is that without my platform, a lot of my end users, which are other product managers, engineers, designers, they can't like run effective AV tests and get their learnings to then ultimately drive value for our users. So I think that's super cool as well. Yeah. We recently published a really cool article about platform PMs. And yeah, it's like a really interesting psychology, I think, like just that kind of flavor of product management in my view. I guess folks that are like uh, Mixpanel, for example, that could be a flavor of platform PM because they're building tools for other product managers and builders. Yeah, I think and in the context <laughs> that I've kind of understood it, it's not an area that I have any experience, honestly, is the idea of building products for your internal team. I mean, in a way, the way that we work at my organization, like like at the product manager, we're kind of doing that all the time. Like, And in every organization, the work that you do stacks up and people you know, leverage it for their for the business to work. It's just kind of a, a foundational part of how a business ecosystem functions. But I just find it's very rewarding, you know, if you are able to deliver something or ship something that is empowering other people to do their job better. And then you are, you know, might encounter them at a work retreat or a water cooler event or something like that. Yeah. And they actually can give you feedback directly about how your work has impacted them. That's true. It, there's just no closer feedback. You have to really seek out a user to get that kind of information and to yeah. have a personal relationship with end user is like a really special thing. I think you're touching on something really important, which is like when you're at like the growth PM or consumer level, sometimes you do feel um, not as close to the user versus like a platform or a B2B PM. Like they're probably talking to their user day in, day out. So that's a, that's a pretty cool vertical to consider as well if, if you're kind of gravitating towards one or, or the other category. So we've really meandered around with... <laughs> <laughs> Ran the spectrum of emotional intelligence. So I guess we should probably wrap it up in the service of our precious listeners time. But I'm sure I feel like there's probably like tons more that you have to offer. So I would love if you could share where people can find you online if they want to follow your work and get in touch. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is shamshirks. And then if you're ever curious about getting in touch with me, I also have my website or you can find me on LinkedIn. My website is growthwithshamshir.com. Awesome. Well, this has been a super fun conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show and enlightening us with all of this emotional intelligence. And I hope we can have you back sometime. 
Thank you so much, Hannah, for allowing me into the space to talk about this topic, which is very near and dear to my heart. And I'm glad that some of this stuff resonated with you. So I'm super excited to have listeners listen to this as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening in. For more great insights, how-to guides, and tool reviews, subscribe to our newsletter at theproductmanager.com slash subscribe. You can hear more conversations like this by subscribing to The Product Manager wherever you get your podcasts.